Hey everyone, today's guest on the My Climate Journey podcast skilled labor series is Nathaniel Johnson. Nathaniel spent the past 18 years as an award-winning journalist who has written features for Harper's Magazine, New York Magazine, Wall Street Journal, and produced stories for the likes of NPR and This American Life. Recently, Nathaniel has switched career paths and now is training to become an electrician. In the past, we've chatted with folks on the show who've spent decades in the trades, but I really wanted to hear the story of someone who is earlier in their journey in the field. More interestingly, I wanted to understand the motivations behind someone's decision to make the switch from a computer job to a skills trade job and the joys, misconceptions, challenges, and rewards that come with it. Stay tuned. This conversation was chock full of insight. But first, I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. And with that, Nathaniel, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. So just to give some context as to how we got connected, we've been doing the skilled labor series for a while now, and we've talked to electricians, but I really wanted to talk to someone who was transitioning as maybe a a second or third chapter of their careers into the job versus having started off in it. And when I put the ask out on LinkedIn and Twitter, we'd heard from a few people, one of whom was another Nathaniel, Nate the House Whisperer, who said, hey, there's another Nate out there who (laughs) you should talk to. And we found you. And in my research of you, I was delighted to have already heard you on two of my favorite podcasts, one being 99% Invisible, talking about something completely unrelated to being an electrician, talking about a book that you wrote. And then the other was How to Save a Planet, hosted by Alex Bloomberg, who we had on the show a little bit earlier. So I'm freaking stoked to (laughs) chat with you today. (laughs) Well, I would just love to get to know you a bit more, as I'm sure many of our listeners would. So maybe let's just get started. Tell me a little bit more about where you grew up and what interests you had as a kid. I mean, ultimately, we're going to talk about your role transitioning into the electrical worker space. Yeah, so let's get started. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that springs to mind when I think about interests as a kid is the environment. I was really sort of preoccupied with maybe not saving the planet at that point, but my family would take trips. We'd go backpacking up in Yosemite every summer. And we moved from Berkeley up to Nevada City, which is this little town in the foothills of the Sierras. That's really gorgeous. And so early on, I had this appreciation for the aesthetics of environmentalism. You know, I'd we'd be up backpacking in Yosemite and it would just be gorgeous. And then we'd come back and, you know, you're driving down and you get to like levining maybe and you see that it's not quite as pretty. And then you get down into the Central Valley. I guess that's going the other direction from levining, but never mind. There's multiple ways into Yosemite. You get down in the Central Valley and it's big agriculture and it's, you know, it's another step down. And then you get into miles and miles of strip malls and, you know, it's just getting progressively uglier and uglier. And So early on, I think like many white environmentalists from developed countries, 
the entry point for me was why can't everything be as beautiful as it is when I'm up in the high country, when there's fewer people around where, you know, this sense that the world is really beautiful and then people come along and, and make it ugly. And my thinking has really developed since that. I think there's a lot of problems with the entry point focusing on aesthetics, but it's also an entry point. People care about beauty. That's an important thing. And it really led me to start thinking about how do we do better, you know, with it and start thinking beyond aesthetics. How can we live more in harmony with the natural world? As a kid, it was just, I'm reading Ranger Rick magazine and I'm, I sort of perk up when someone starts to mention interesting ideas in this space. And all through school, I'm like, oh, this idea that we could generate our, our energy in a different way. That's interesting. Oh, could we could we do farming differently? That's interesting. So, I mean, that was always there, you know, along with, you know, I was excited about, about reading books and riding my bike around the gravel roads of my small town and playing baseball, that sort of thing as a kid. And you mentioned all throughout school. What did you study in school? I went to a liberal arts college and I wasn't really sure what I was doing. And I ended up with a, a media studies major, which is sort of like reading postmodern French philosophers, which was, <laughs> I feel like a bit of a misstep. I mean, maybe it was useful just in that I ended up in media and I sort of had a, I was like, I was vaccinated against those. Like, I was like, no, I've read, I've read Althusser. Like, I don't have a ton of respect for postmodern philosophy after like really diving into it. And there's like, okay, yeah, there's something there, but it's also like a lot of very simple ideas dressed up in very complicated language that's not that accessible. And if you really take the time and get to the bottom of it, it's like, okay, yes, like here's, here's this. Anyway, I sort of wish that maybe I'd studied something else in college. And it was, you know, I just hadn't, I'd just gotten feedback from teachers that I was, you know, as a good communicator, I was good at writing. And I didn't really know what to do with that. And so I just kind of stumbled into that. I wonder what of that desire to really simply communicate versus doing it in more complicated prose, a la the philosophy that you were exposed to led you to doing stuff in media. I mean, I know that you spent years as, as a journalist. Maybe if you talk to us about that and how, how that journey had progressed from when you started to right before you, you decided to transition to doing something else. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, you may have really hit on something there that, you know, this idea that like, okay, yeah, I can communicate in such a way I can take these really basic ideas that are kind of dressed up in complicated jargon. And there's this emperor has no clothes effect where it's kind of like, I don't really understand this. So it must be something truly profound. And I felt like, you know, okay, I can get to the very bottom of this and see what the kernel of wisdom is there and translate it in more simple words for my classmates or for my audience. And just this idea that it's like, you know, it's not that hard. Everybody can really understand these things if it's simply communicated well. Yeah, that really is something that I still care about a lot to this day. So I finished up college and I still didn't really know what I was doing. But this idea of journalism was kind of attractive because it seemed like, okay, people tell me I'm a good writer. Here's a way that I can write and not have it be 
just a complete gamble, like trying to be an artist, trying to be a novelist. Journalism seemed like something that you could actually get paid for back at that time. <laughs> and it was like, I applied to all sorts of small town newspapers and got hired by one in a tiny little... I was in the bureau. I was in the Twin Falls Times News, which is a small newspaper to begin with in Southern Idaho. And then I was in this bureau in in Burley, which is an even smaller town. Kind of, If you imagine the bottom of Idaho makes a T with the border between Nevada and Utah, and the bottom of Idaho is the top of the T. It's just north of there in the middle of huge potato farms and beet farms and corn and soy, of course. And so I, I went out to this little town and was the daily beat reporter. And it was kind of a miserable place to be as a young person fresh out of college. You know, I'm like, sort of excited about like, oh, I'm going to be this young person who has a job and has free time. And I'm going to like, meet other people and I'm going to date. And, and instead, it's this tiny little town where everybody is very religious, mostly Mormon. Everybody's married by the time they graduate from high school, it seems like. And church is really the main form of social mixing and capital. So you know, I, I got involved in that a little bit. Like I sang in a couple church choirs. I, I got involved in a theater group that was like a bunch of Mormons hanging out and making theater. This is probably more detailed than you want. But I, I was, I'm just waiting for, for, for an entry to make a joke about being a beat reporter and then being a beat reporter. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I did, I, I did have a nice opportunity to make a headline about the beat going on during the beet harvest one time. But the point is that I was started writing about agriculture and writing about the way in which people were interacting with their environment, you know, and I was able to do that in a very daily newspaper fashion, you know, just like people are a little worried, even in this super libertarian conservative environment, people don't care about the environment or the kind of aesthetic environmentalism that I was interested in was just almost completely absent there. But people were worried about their property rights. And when there's a giant dairy that's going to be built right next to them, they know that it's going to make life a little bit different and it's going to be smelly. And then there was this really interesting thing that would happen where the property right libertarians are wondering, you know, do I protect the property rights of the people who have houses right here? Or do I protect the property rights of the people who own this land that want to build a dairy on it? And so it was kind of a fascinating entree into seeing how those systems of social politics, capital, and environmental sustainability played on one another. It's quite interesting because I was going to ask this a little later, but I'll ask it now. Well, I guess more of an observation. I'm getting into your book, the book that you wrote, Unseen City, which is about kind of the majesty of the urban nature that's around us that we often take for granted. For instance, like, why don't you see baby pigeons walking around the city, which I found out why in the book, I was I was going through it and looking at your you know background writing for Grist as an environmental journalist. I was just thinking like, why is Nathaniel now focusing on 
electrical work. Why not something more in the conservation biodiversity space? What I'm realizing now is, you know, this intersection of nature, infrastructure, and built environment has been something of a theme throughout your career, which now, you know, I'm like, oh, maybe that's why the electrical work makes sense as where you're focused on in this next chapter of your career. Yeah, I wonder if you had thoughts on that. Am I off base? No, that's a really incisive observation, actually. I don't know if I'd necessarily made that connection, but yeah, absolutely. It's sort of a cliche to say that everything is connected, but that's kind of where I was always interested in things is working at the intersections, figuring out how to make those nexuses work. You know, if you're sort of focused purely on conservation or purely on energy or purely on wildlife, you can't get very deep into it until you have to start dealing with those other issues. You're dealing with wildlife and then someone wants to build a bunch of wind turbines right in that area. Then you're all of a sudden, you know, which is something I reported on while I was working at that newspaper, you're thrown right back into that dealing with those trade-offs and asking which is more important and how you how you weigh those things. You know, we'll talk about your transition. Were there like a few key moments along your journey doing writing and doing reporting that when you look back now were moments where you had maybe an aha to say, actually, what I want to do is spend my time doing X instead of doing writing and reporting? Doing electrical work, you mean? Yes. Thank you for making that work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in a a nutshell, like the when I was working at that newspaper in Idaho, in that period, you know, I kind of stepped on the first rung of the ladder in journalism and watched the rest of the ladder kind of crumble around me because this was I started my career in two thousand one, and Craigslist was booming, and that was kind of this first threat from the internet to newspapers because all of a sudden classified ad just disappeared and newspapers started downsizing. So there used to be this way in which you you started at the small town newspaper, and then you went to the regional newspaper, and then you, you know got hired by San Francisco Chronicle or the New York Times, and newspapers just downsized and downsized and downsized. And so I saw my path out of Burley, Idaho, as, you know, I would do something differently. I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley, And I was like, I want to do magazine writing. I want to do radio. So I spent some years in public radio. I was freelancing for magazines and ended up writing at this environmental magazine, Grist, covering climate change and covering agriculture, among other things. And the idea that I would become an electrician, it wasn't like something that was sort of gradually building up along the way. It was more like, getting hit by a bus, you know, it was just this random step off the curve and like, oh, now I'm going in this direction instead. And I think it was just, you know, I was really in love with journalism for most of the 20 years that I did it. And the last couple of years, I just found it harder and harder to get up the gumption to start, start the new story. And I was kind of suffering every day that I was I was facing my computer and I was at the point in my career where it was like, I would need to work for another 20 years. And that idea of 
doing what I was doing for another 20 years just sounded terrifying and horrible to me rather than exciting. And so there's much more obvious places to turn than completely abandoning all of the storytelling skills that I'd built up and going to manual labor. But I was working on small projects at my house and I just found I was so happy while I was doing that. And I was kind of fleeing my day job. Like, okay, I'll take a little time and go fiddle around with this electrical outlet that's acting up. And it was just very different and very easy to immediately access that that state of flow where I was just in it, solving the immediate problem in front of me. And there was also the sense that, you know, I think part of the reason I, I was falling out of love with journalism was that I was, I felt like I was kind of doing the same thing over and over again, writing about climate change. There's a lot of nuances to explore, but basically it's like, we kind of know what we have to do. And you end up writing the same story over and over again. And there's all this sturm and drang and fighting about like, well, should we do things slightly in this direction or slightly in that direction? What percentage of renewables? What percent should we, is nuclear an option? You know, are we going to go completely organic or no, that doesn't make sense. There's too much land use. You know, we, we need some technological options, but we also want to include the aesthetics of organic farming. Like, no, you're, you're using some industrial nitrogen. That's just evil. You know, all these sort of silly fights where I would dutifully go back and rehash the old turf and find out what new facts there were and talk to the partisans on each side. You know, I just, I just couldn't get up the excitement to keep doing it. And when I was working with electricity, it felt like instead of talking and talking and talking and talking about things, I was just getting down to work because we have to electrify everything. That's one of those things that everybody sort of agrees on. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I could help with this. That man, that hits home. Just the feeling, maybe helplessness is not the right word, but I'll use it for now. Of like, shit's happening. Like, what am I actually doing about it that's making a difference? And thinking I, I'm just writing about it. Am I actioning? Can I action in a more effective way? And what brings me joy? It's hard to tell with writing. Like, maybe you're having just a a huge impact, you know, or creating a podcast, like maybe you're changing all sorts of people's life trajectories. But it's hard to tell, right? You don't have that immediate feedback, whether you've had success or failure, you're just sort of sending out these messages into the void. And maybe it's amazing. Whereas with when I'm doing electrical work, at the end of the day, it's a very small, I'm just changing one outlet, maybe or, or fixing one light. But at the end of the day, the light comes on or it doesn't. There's a very clear feedback as to whether I've been successful. My husband was in a similar boat, you know, software engineer for a uh, product manager at your Silicon Valley trope companies. And during the pandemic, he's like, I love doing electrical work. He was actually helping me solder. My wedding ring broke a couple of days ago. <laughs> and I was like, Mark, can you fix this? And he was like, they're soldering with the girls last night trying to fix my <laughs> ring. But all to say, you know, like we have these books lying around the house. Where he's <laughs> awesome. just like, I, I just need to go on this journey has not gone as far as you and ended up doing startup, but it, he felt very similar and kind of calling to do something more with moving atoms, like physically touching things and making things change and rewiring. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. I know that book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think anyone who's in electrical work knows this book. And actually, maybe for for people that are listening who can't see, this is Mike Holt's series of books on basically how to become an electrician. Yes, anyway. Although you guys have a slightly different electrical code in Canada, I, I understand. These, I think, are for, we got them when we were in the States. <laughs> but yes. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. What fears did you have about the switch? Oh my gosh, I was in a very dark place. I think in our culture, it's really, we're really pretty conservative about our careers. Like, if you're just kind of giving something up that you've spent a lot of, if giving up a job that you've spent a lot of time in, there's a lot of cultural baggage that goes with that, you know? And I I sort of felt like, am I one of those midlife crisis men that's just like running off to be like, I want to be a filmmaker, you know, am I just going to lead my family into ruin because of this? Like, I just needed to fix my head where I was and just buck up and deal with my dissatisfaction rather than blowing up my career and doing something totally different. So yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't like I was completely miserable every day. It was just kind of a drag to do the work. And I was procrastinating. And I was, when I should have been working, I was watching YouTube videos about carpentry and electrical work and, and then feeling crappy about myself because I shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, it just wasn't good. It wasn't like I was waking up every morning and being excited and energized about what I was doing. I think my big fear was just, am I just not being tough enough with myself? And, you know, I just need to sort of buck up and and deal. And this is a phase and I'll get over it. I'm curious on the switching from a career in journalism that is considered very white collar, needing a college degree, et cetera, et cetera, to a career path in skilled trades that is blue collar. Was there any thought in your mind around the perception that people might have of you in making that switch? And if so, what was that like? It was less about other people, the external perception, and more about my perception of myself. I think you become a journalist, or at least I should say I became a journalist because I wanted to have some of that external validation that I could be known. My name would get printed in places. People would 
want to have me on podcasts. People would ask me to come speak at conferences and I'd win awards. And I sort of wanted that external validation that I was special in some way. I don't think I ever really cared. Like there's a few certain people, like maybe rivals from high school, you know, early on in my career. Like I want someone to be like, oh, wow, he's really successful. But I think I got over that by the time I was in my mid-20s. or So it was just really about myself. And I don't think I really cared what other people thought of me. But there's still moments, I think, where, you know, I've got my tool belt on and I'm drilling holes and studs to run electrical wires. And I kind of look at myself and I'm like, I'm a construction worker. There's this kind of class stigma that I feel myself, you know, or I'll be doing a, a really dirty job. I'll be climbing through an attic and see a pile of rat droppings and the insulation and just be kind of like, I should not be doing this. This is not for my type of person. And it's less about the discomfort that I'm feeling in that moment and more about this sense of class that I should be, I just shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. Which is, you know, it's just, it's in the ether, it's in the air, it's in the food that I was eating and the lessons that I was kind of taking in from family and, and teachers, whether they meant to pass that along or not. I think it's a bit of unwiring that we have to do. I like the verb wiring. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that we are going to be faced with the need for more and more electrical work, and there's a dearth of new electricians coming into this space, how can we most effectively help us as a, I guess, collective society do that dewiring to help electrical work have the clout and the reputation of being a really amazing career trajectory on par with being a software engineer, being a journalist, being fill in the blank? Yeah. Well, I don't think there's any one answer. I can tell you for me, I was watching YouTube videos of trying to figure out, just trying to figure out how to do the little home repairs that I was working on. And I came across this YouTuber named Scott Brown, who's a carpenter in New Zealand. And he was this very clearly upper middle class carpenter. And he was spending a lot of time making beautiful videos <laughs> of his work. And he was proceeding in his work in this kind of placid, step by step manner, which was very different from the kind of construction work that I'd been exposed to where it's this kind of like, we got to go, we, you know, don't concern yourself about personal health. We've got to move faster, you know, or he was just like taking the time to put on his face mask before he cuts something and creates sawdust. And he was just doing everything carefully, but very precisely and, and actually being very efficient because he was moving carefully. And I think that was really transformative for me because I was like, oh, here is someone I can see myself in who's doing this work. I could do that. That could be me. I could have this really fun career as the middle class person that I want to be. So I think, I mean, I think that there's a lot of media work that needs to be done that people have to see representations of themselves in these roles. That'll happen on YouTube and on TikTok. And 
Hopefully that'll happen in Hollywood at some point where instead of in the romantic comedy, the boyfriend is always an architect, right? Like that's the classic thing, which is another terrible job. It's like so much competition and relatively low pay. And and a journalist is another one. You know, people are often journalists in those. And imagine the romantic comedy where the love interest is a HVAC air conditioning technician. That's kind of hard to imagine, but and it wouldn't be a big thing where it's like, oh, he's this blue collar guy, but that's just like, that's just the generic role. So that's part of it. And then there's just much more practical stuff. Like we've kind of destroyed the pipeline for creating these types of workers where there's an education system. There used to be shop classes in every high school. And a lot of those, like all these beautiful machines got sold off in the 80s and the 90s. And those classrooms got turned into something else. And even after high school, there's really not the education infrastructure available. So it's, it's very tricky to figure out, you know, I'm doing community college program to get my certification. It's something that's very underfunded. It's sort of a chaotic place. There's constantly not enough materials. Right now, we're working in a classroom, which is an improvement from the old classroom, which was like way too crowded for us. But there's this classroom is new, but they didn't finish building it. So there's exposed insulation everywhere. And we have to wear face masks because, you know, there's like fiberglass filtering down. There's not enough teachers. There's people have a hard time getting into classes. And then even after the next step on the ladder is also difficult. A lot of my classmates are having a hard time getting the entry level jobs because the real gap is at the journeyman level where you've you know enough to kind of be able to lead your own group of people and the existing electrical contractors out there can say, okay, yes, we can take this new job. Journeyman, go lead that, hire a couple apprentices to train from the community college and make that job happen. So that's what's really missing. So we, we've got all of these sort of older contractors that you know can do a little bit themselves they have maybe one guy that they've hired that they're training up, but there's not the ability to scale up because there's not the number of people out there that can pull in a bunch of trainees. Interesting. Yeah. I'm reflecting on something that you said at the start of your answer, which is you can't be what you can't see. And it's so interesting because like you're a white dude. And when I think about electrician, I think about like a white dude. And so, you know, imagine what we need to do on the kind of public awareness level for people who look like me, people who identify as female, people of color, etc. So it's a real non-trivial issue to solve for. And in addition to that, it sounds like there's these infrastructure, operational infrastructure gaps in getting more people into the door. Exactly. It's also the whole issue of representation and just knowing that that's like an option for you, right? It's also an opportunity. The fact that there's right now it's it's wide open like what is the electrical worker of the future look like right just because there's there's this giant gap there right now so it's kind of on us to define it and yeah it's definitely a lot harder to see women in the trades like a, that used to just not exist at all right but that could be i mean electrical work is a great 
I think that's a really good job for women. And it's kind of exciting to think about how that could be totally redefined. A hundred percent agree. Yeah, I think the government has a big role to play in it to incentivize more capital to be moved into the building PSA space, as well as how do we get more trainee programs up and running faster? So yeah, maybe this is a good place to jump into with the remaining 15 minutes that we have on that journey for you and like maybe getting more pragmatic tactical on like when you decided, yes, I'm going to do this. What was the first step that you took in getting on that journey? Well, I think I took my first step before I, I, committed, right? You know, one thing for people who that might be useful for people who are listening to this podcast is just like, in finding my way out of that dark place of like, what do I do with my life? Do I just stay here? I got some really good advice, which was, instead of sort of trying to project and figure out, okay, if I do this, then I'll do this, then I'll do this. And like, here's my master plan, I figured it out. You can never anticipate how things are going to work out or how they're going to feel. And so I got some really good advice to stop trying to sort of future cast in that way and simply to take small steps in different directions and then see how I was feeling. And so it was very clear I was not feeling so good trying to do the work that I'd been doing every day. It was, you know, I'm just dragging myself by the scruff of my neck to my desk. And then I was doing my own work. And then I just asked my wife, I was like, you know, what if I just signed up? There's this class at this community college. What if I just signed up for that and tried it? And she she was totally supportive of it. Again, it was more my fear of like, is it okay if I like take this tiny step forward? And so that was kind of my first step. And then I I started talking to people about it, which felt scary too. Like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about changing careers. I was just like, is this really coming out of my mouth? And one of my friends, just a neighbor, kids at the same bus stop said, Oh, I have one of my friends is an electrician. And he, he's mentioned recently that he's starting to feel like older and a little creaky and he doesn't want to be spending as much time in the crawl spaces as before. And so I called this guy up and sent him a text and said, look, I'm kind of interested in this. And I've been taking this class at community college and. I don't know why, but they gave me the opportunity to get this official trainee card so I can actually work. That turns out to be the process in California for becoming an electrician is you start going to classes and you get this trainee card and then you're supposed to work as you go. And he called me right back and said, come out and try it. Spend a day with me. And then I started taking a vacation day every week from my job and doing electrical work with him. and. I really sort of eased my way into it. And every step of the way, it was like, this feels fun. This feels exciting. You know, I'm waking up and I'm like, ah, this is my electrician day. Oh my God, I feel your excitement and just telling the journey. That's amazing. Yeah. And then at some point, I had another conversation with my wife and was like, I think maybe I want to do this. I, you know, I can start working for this guy full time. Should I quit my job? Like, and she's like, Absolutely. And you should do it sooner rather than later. If this, this is what's making you happy, you know, we're fortunate that she has a, a really good job and was making more money. You know, she's a union nurse practitioner with the city of San Francisco. But, you know, we had a little wiggle room. 
And it helps too that you were being paid as you were training too. Exactly. My boss, John, John Kasdan, you know, immediately started paying me. And then when we, we went to full time, you know, he figured out the book work to, you know, really get me on and get the workers compensation and liability insurance going. And it wasn't actually that much of a pay cut for me to go from the senior position as a journalist to the most junior of junior positions as an electrician. So, so yeah, I mean, it was the practical steps felt not that crazy and not quite like getting hit by a bus, you know, just more kind of like, okay, you know, I'll take this first step and then the second step. I was originally going to ask you things that you've had to adjust to on mindset. We talked about that. We just talked about pay. What about schedule and just career growth expectations? Yeah. I mean, my schedule is very, there's a lot of allowance for work-life balance in my schedule because my wife was making more money than me. And she was interested in continuing to work full time. It made sense for me to be the main childcare person, to be the guy that gets the kids out the door in the morning and be the guy that's available to run and grab them if they're sick in the afternoon. And so I think this is not universally true for electricians, but I work for me and my boss. It's just the two of us. We really never go further than a five-mile radius of my home. So it's very easy for me to to stop and go get the kids if I need to. And he also really understands that. He was in a similar position when he was starting his electrical work. And when I have that kind of family conflict, he's he says, go, just go. No worries. <laughs> and it's definitely not true for union electricians who, you know, if you're in the union, you're, you have a lot less choice over where you're working and you're probably taking longer commutes. There isn't the opportunity to simply leave the job site and go pick up your kids, as far as I understood. And I think that's probably true if you're working for a non-union bigger company as well. And I think there's plenty of the jobs that I'm in out there. There's a lot of small electrical contractors where, and the work is really sort of fungible. You can do it on a different day, you know, or, or go to a different job site. And then on career growth expectations, any commentary there? Yeah. I mean, the potential for making more money in this career is higher than in my career as a journalist, I think, because unless you become really famous. You know, the journalists that really make tons of money are the people who gain a strong partisan following, right? Whether it's liberal or conservative, like those are the people that just make millions and millions of dollars. And then if you actually want to be a journalist, journalist, and like go out and find new facts that other people haven't learned before, instead of sort of like repackaging the facts that are out there to please your audience, you're going to top out around $100,000 a year, I think, at you know the current inflation levels. And you can make more as an electrician. And there's also a very clear progression where if you get to the level where you're fully certified, you're basically also at the level where it makes sense to split off into your own business. There's like one more sort of businessy test that you're supposed to take in my jurisdiction. 
So if you're interested in being a little bit more of an entrepreneur and running your own business, there's this very clear pathway to doing that. So both in terms of money and like, I'm kind of interested in maybe being a teacher and a mentor at some stage and figuring out how to build systems, you know, maybe that'll be an interesting next step for me. And if this tinkering with my hands and solving very concrete problems ever gets old, there's a lot more that I could do if I wanted to. It sounds like the options on where you take this training are pretty wide. Pretty you know, wide. Being an entrepreneur, and, yeah, teaching. And pretty fertile too, because it's, I wouldn't feel as confident if I was like, okay, you know what I want to do? I want to be an entrepreneur in journalism. I'm going to have a media startup. It's just like, what am I going to do that's going to be successful, right? Like, it's so hard to figure out a profit model. Whereas with electrical work, it's just like, there's way too little supply of electricians and, and way too much demand. And what you need to do to be a successful entrepreneur is to just figure out how not to drop the ball and how to be competent, you know, and to develop a little bit of a pipeline to train people up and communicate well with your customers. And I think you'll make money, you know, so it's, it just feels a lot more secure. Yeah. And I'm taking the through line from what got you started in journalism is you're really good at communicating um, and applying that to the electrician world to whatever path you choose, choose your own adventure. I think that skill set comes in real handy as well. Two more questions. I know you got to head to a job site at nine o'clock. Yeah, I have to today I have to make sure that this house is ready for a family to move into. So there's a <laughs> Okay. Okay, I don't want to be the thing that holds you up to get there. So real quickly, of all the electrical projects that you've done, say, in this past year, what's been your favorite? Oh, geez. It's hard to pick favorites, but I'll try and think of something that's been... <laughs> Most um, memorable? <laughs> yeah, exciting. There's specific parts of the job that I find really exciting. So on every job that I have to fish wire, which is you know pushing wires through places that you can't see from an attic down to a light switch in the room below or from a basement. So here's a good example. There's a house where there was all this old wiring that's falling apart in the attic. And we needed to go get a new wire to replace that from the basement up through the first story, up through the second story and into the attic. And so my boss, he deserves the credit, found this pathway pushing up these fish rods, these fiberglass rods, all the way from the basement, all the way into the attic. And we're able to pull just when you see the wire emerge or your fish rod, like, oh my gosh, it's coming out of this tiny hole that we made. And we're traveling through these arcane spaces in the walls and getting through it. It always just feels like a miracle. So that's always really exciting. So just that experience of like laying on the joists in the attic and then seeing that that red fiberglass fish rod emerge and be like, ah, you know, talking to my phone, I got it. I'm pulling. We pull all these wires up. It's really fun. Oh, thank you for sharing that example. Again, it's just like so physical and so satisfying to be able to say like, oh, I did something and here's the result. 
Very cool. Okay. Well, gosh, this has been such a joy to chat with you, Nathaniel. Thank you for letting me, letting us pepper you with all these questions. And I can feel the sense of joy that you get from doing the work that you're doing and just really appreciative of your taking the time to focus on this very important area within our labor force that needs more people to be in it and sharing your story with us. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for your interest. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.